When I first got serious about learning to code, and I tell the story actually in episode one of the podcast, uh, I had been given the task of coming up with some numbers on our sales uh, from our e-commerce system. And so one of the first things, of course, that I had to do was learn how to get that information out of our e-commerce platform. So I had already decided to use Python as the language, and I'd already had a little bit of experience with Python, but not much, and I'd always sort of given up learning to try in the past. But when I first got serious about really giving it a shot and learning and, and solving this particular business problem that was in front of me, I immediately started to have trouble with the idea of how it was that I was going to get information from the internet. So it wasn't too hard to find the place in the Python documentation where I could place a request to the internet. But I do have to say that even that, nowadays it seems extremely elementary, uh, the idea of making a get request to the internet. But at the time, even though it, it didn't take me too long to find the documentation, I still remember feeling like I was on this rabbit trail because in my mind, the way I looked at it was, okay, I'm going to learn how to program here and I need to use this programming language to do some stuff and I need to go out to the internet and get that stuff. But what the heck do I do uh, in between? Like, where do I go to figure this out? And uh, how exactly do I accomplish this? And welcome back to the next episode of the Tunnel Coder podcast. This is episode number seven. My name is Nate, and today we're going to be talking about some of the things that when you're first learning to code, you might not right away realize that you need to learn, but there's this whole sort of set of other things that you will need to take a look at as you continue on your journey learning to code. So as always, thanks so much for joining us today or tonight, wherever you're at, and hope you enjoy the episode. And so I basically started looking through the documentation, like I said, and I didn't know exactly what I was looking for. Uh, in fact, at the time, I didn't even know that what I was looking for was called a request. I didn't even know that uh, what you get back is a response. I didn't know that what I'm sending was a get request versus uh, you know, the other types of what they call HTTP verbs, uh, such as, you know, get, post, put, delete, patch. Uh, those are some of the verbs. Those are the most common ones. It, it took a second just to figure that out, just to even figure out what it was that I was looking for, that I was looking for something called an HTTP client. Um, all I knew at the time was I want to get some stuff from the internet. That's basically what I knew. And I knew also at the time that when you want to get stuff from the internet, you need to get it from what's called an API. And so unfortunately, uh, the e-commerce platform that we were using at the time 
the documentation was just extremely outdated and uh, it, it didn't conform to what's called the RESTful standards. And at the time, I didn't know even, you know, what REST was. Uh, some of you may not know. I mean, if you've been around programming for, you know, even a little bit of time, you should have come across REST, which uh, is spelled the way it sounds, uh, R-E-S-T. And RESTful services are basically APIs that uh, conform to a particular sort of standard in the way that they're built. Uh, you know, so if you're going to get a customer or get an order, um, it's usually, uh, there's an endpoint, they call it. So it would be, you know, the uh, URL of the particular website, you know, the, of the API itself. And it usually has sort of maybe like a, a V1 in it to denote that this is the particular version of the API. And then, uh, and then we're going to be like forward slash customers, forward slash one, you know, for the ID of one say if that's like the first customer in the database kind of thing. And of course, this is a whole other subject and uh, can go super deep on that subject. Uh, and you can you can get into a whole bunch of stuff on that. Maybe I'll talk about that more in depth on another episode. And so he, these are all the things that I had no clue about. So like I said, I didn't even know that I was looking for one, an HTTP client, didn't know that didn't know that I needed to make a GET request to pull some data from the API. I didn't know that uh, in the future, if I wanted to send something back to the internet, that what I was going to be doing was sending a POST request and that I would need to include in that POST some kind of a body, they call it. And there's different types of bodies. There, Some of them are formatted differently. Uh, sometimes, I mean, most of the time it's formatted as JSON. A lot of other times it's formatted as uh, a URL encoded form. That's a whole other thing. Usually what you send in the body is usually like XML or JSON. Uh, anyway, the point is, is that there's so many things when you're first learning to code uh, that are sort of like these kind of ancillaries or these sort of like side things that you need to know in order to accomplish your main objective. So one of the other things that I had to know was how to structure a basic SQL query, how to write a basic SQL query, how to write a basic SQL insert statement, how to drop a SQL table, um, how to create a table, things like that. I didn't know any of that stuff. Uh, I had actually, well, I, sh I should take that back. I did know a little bit about that. In fact, before I really dove into learning Python, I had been writing a little bit of SQL for some of the internal SQL statements that I was putting into our e-commerce platform. They had like a little internal SQL editor. So I should say I, I didn't know it at the level that I later on knew it once I really dove in and started learning. Uh, I had to actually learn quite a bit more um, to be able to do the kinds of uh, SQL type stuff that I needed to do on my own machine. Like I started using SQLite, which is a uh, embedded sort of local SQL database that you don't actually have to run like a SQL server for. And that's okay. I mean, it's 
decent, you know, to, to start out and to just kind of mess around with prototyping and stuff. But as you get farther along, you have to run an actual uh, database server. So like MySQL, Postgres, something like that. You could run on your local machine and uh, use that to uh, power the back end of whatever it is that you're that you're doing. But um, from there, I actually went on to learn uh, like NoSQL type of stuff, they call it, um, which is databases that are what they call document stores. So like MongoDB is probably the biggest and well, most well-known uh, NoSQL. One of the ones that first came around, I think in this space, was called CouchDB. And they eventually got bought out by a commercial company, but it was free and open source first. And I didn't really use that one a whole lot. I really got into Mongo first, but then uh, after that, um, a whole bunch of NoSQL types of databases sprung up on Amazon and Azure and everything like you can find uh, like on Amazon, like on AWS, there's like DynamoDB uh, and on Azure, it's Azure Cosmos DB. So I just looked it up real quick. I couldn't remember what it was off the top of my head. Anyway, the cool thing about the Azure Cosmos DB is you can actually use MongoDB bindings for it. And that just means that you can use the MongoDB sort of uh, query structure and, and um, you know, the sort of, it's kind of like a what they call a DSL, stands for Domain Specific Language. They have their sort of own DSL that you use to interact with Mongo. And you can use that as sort of a, front end, if, you're, if that's something that you're used to, you can switch the Cosmos DB bindings to the Mongo, and you can write kind of familiar Mongo type code in .NET Core, or really actually any .NET stuff, because they have the packages for the framework and .NET Core, but anyway, that's getting too much into the weeds, but uh, you can, anyway, you can use uh, Cosmos DB as kind of like the back, backing store in the cloud for your Mongo queries. Anyway, I'm getting way super off track here, but the whole point of this is that when I started learning to code again, uh, after all the years that I'd sort of tried and failed, um, I was just kind of blown away by the amount of extra stuff like on the side that I had to know. And I was already an IT admin and been into IT admin stuff for a long time, had actually ran my own company in Northern California. So I was very comfortable with, uh, you know, standing up servers and IT infrastructure and, you know, uh, routers and switches and cabling and antivirus and installing Linux servers. And I mean, shoot, I used to uh, build my own Linux boxes back in the day when I was doing this and uh, throw in uh, a whole bunch of disks and put them onto what's called a RAID uh, controller and uh, create redundancy with a bunch of drives and uh, use Linux uh, as the OS and then uh, put like a what's called a Samba file share on there. And that was sort of the kind of uh, on-premises version of our cloud back then. Like this is back in the mid-2000s before uh, the cloud really took off. And I mean, in a lot of ways, the cloud in air quotes, is sort of really just that. I mean, it's like a whole bunch of, you know, well, nowadays really sophisticated machines uh, running in the cloud, but at, at a basic level, it's, it's that. It's a bunch of file servers and um, the kinds of machines that we used to run on-premises 
uh, you know, they basically just scaled up to, you know, hundreds of thousands of machines in a server farm somewhere. And they've got all this huge infrastructure and engineers to take care of it. And they rent us out little chunks of it, you know, for really cheap prices because they're able to virtualize and all this kind of stuff. And if you don't know what virtualization means, that is basically using, uh, this is, and actually this, this has kind of come a long way, but, and I'm, and I'm really rambling at this point, but, uh, it used to be that before the cloud really took off, uh, what you would do is run, uh, a virtual machine, which would sort of, you could, you could kind of like, and you could still do this on your laptop even. I mean, you could download what's called virtual box, which is like a free one. There used to be some other ones like, well, there still is like uh, VMware and all this kind of stuff. And, different uh, software packages that let you virtualize like a different OS. There was one called Parallels for a while on the Mac, but uh, you would basically uh, run one of these virtual machines and put a whole entire operating system into that virtual machine, and uh, then you would kind of be able to switch back and forth kind of like on another screen, and it would capture your mouse and everything. And it lets you run you know, like Windows type of stuff on your Mac. But then in the cloud, they've basically, you know, taken it a whole bunch of steps farther where they're sort of like time slicing uh, a whole bunch of these, well, really probably millions of these virtual machines. And they're not tied to any specific hardware. There's a bunch of abstraction and virtualization underneath it so that your code or whatever it is you're deploying into the cloud is moving around all the time and being redeployed and, uh, you know, really probably every, I don't know how often they do this, but I'm, I'm assuming it's probably every few seconds or every few minutes or, you know, it's, it, you would never, you would never really know physically where your chunk of code lives or whatever it is that you're, whatever resources you're using in the cloud are always sort of moving around and migrating to, different physical places in, or they're spread across a bunch of server farms, depending on your uh, level of service. You know, if it was like geo redundant, um, and I'm, again, I'm totally rambling here, but if it was geo redundant, it'd be spread across a whole bunch of different farms across a bunch of geographical areas and your, whatever code you deploy, or if you're using some Amazon services or some Azure services, like let's say you've got a virtual machine in the cloud that you can log into or whatever, that, you know, a bunch of different pieces of that are living a bunch of different physical places. And it's all become very complex, but at the same time, it's driven down the cost. And um, anyway, uh, the reason why I'm getting into all that is I think I, got off on that subject because I'm saying that even though I have a background in running my own servers on location or on premises, and even though I had had kind of a long career in IT up until the point when I really dug into learning how to code, uh, I still found myself kind of blown away by all the extras that I had to learn around simple things. Like I said, getting all the way back to the beginning, I had something that I wanted to do. I wanted to, uh, basically I knew that I wanted to get some orders at a simple level, get these orders out of my e-commerce platform. Right. And then I wanted to do some stuff with it. I wanted to analyze it. And then I wanted to, uh, eventually 
push things back into the API. And so, first of all, the thing that was really difficult to begin with is that the API that I was working with at the time had just horrible documentation. It didn't conform to the RESTful standard. So if that had been the case, I would have come along much faster. But uh, back in 2012, I remember that a lot of the e-commerce platforms that were out there were kind of just getting up to speed. Uh, and it wasn't anywhere near what we have now with with all the standardization of the APIs and the documentation behind the scenes and, uh, you know, really just how easy it is now to, uh, as a developer, really in any phase of your learning, to be able to kind of make sense of what it is that you need to do and find the documentation to do it. But when, when I was first getting into it, again, like I said, I finally figured out that I needed a GET request and so uh, I looked up the Python documentation and I found the documentation on the HTTP client. And I initially found that just really difficult at my stage of learning. And um, there was just all this stuff, all these things about the you know protocols and the specs and the ports and uh, chunked transfer and <laughs> HTTP 1.1 and... Uh, just all these things, HTTPS, you know, which is the SSL version and request and response objects. And I mean, I could go on and on. There's just so much stuff. And I was like, wow, like, I mean, I can't even tell you like how sort of deflating it was at first because I was like, I think I was thinking, you know, I'd finally made this decision. Okay, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to dig in with everything that I've got and learn how to code. In my mind, I knew code was the answer to the problems that I had. I knew that, you know, the things that I wanted to do could probably only really be done by either me writing the code or somebody else writing the code. And so I made this sort of simplistic decision that I was going to learn how to code. And it's like, you get to this place and you think, you know, once you make that decision, you almost have this kind of naive sort of feeling like, oh, I'm off to see the wizard. You know what I mean? Like, kind of like Dorothy setting off on the yellow brick road. And it's like, at first, you're like, you know, naively and simply optimistic about the path that you've chosen to go on. And it's like, everything's roses and, uh, you know, the the sky is blue and the, the birds are singing. And then shortly, for me at least, and I'm, I'm sure it's like this for a lot of people, you get into this place where you're like, like, wow, you know, it's just like all these things start popping out of the woods and the clouds sort of slowly close in and all of a sudden there's eyes in the forest, you know, and it's like, where am I? You know what I mean? Like, is this a safe place anymore? You know, um, it's just like, that's how it felt. And so um, luckily I found right away, found uh this software package uh, called Requests, and it's written by this guy named Kenneth Wrights, and he's kind of like a huge rock star in the Python world. He's got like a bunch of other Python packages, and uh, I would encourage you to look him up. He's just a super awesome dude and, you know, very easily a genius, and he's got all these other things that he does, and, and you could look him up at kennethwrights.org. That's www 
K-E-N-N-E-T-H-R-E-I-T-Z.org. And uh, you could find all of his uh, projects that he's got and everything. But anyway, he's got this project called Requests, and it's HTTP for humans, which I just, I love that. And um, if you look at, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's, I, I love this guy. Um, I found him really early on in my journey and, and just, I really connected with kind of the, you know, almost sort of uh, the, you know, humorous way he describes this package. And uh, if you look at it, it says, requests allows you to send organic grass-fed HTTP 1.1 requests without the need for manual labor. There's no need to manually add query strings to your URLs or to form and code your post data. Keep alive and HTTP connection pooling are 100% automatic thanks to URLobe 3. And, and then he goes on and on and says how Nike and Twitter and Spotify and Amazon and Microsoft and Lyft and BuzzFeed and there's a huge list. All these people use it. And uh, anyway, it says requests is an elegant and simple HTTP libra- library for Python built for human beings. And uh, that just really resonated with me. I mean, there's a good bit of marketing there in a lot of ways. I mean, this is a free software package, but... Um, you know, still there's kind of that hook in the marketing and, um, truly, honestly, it's insanely easier to use compared to the, uh, built-in, uh, Python packages, especially when I first started with the, uh, Python 2.7 and, uh, well, actually, I don't know, I probably shouldn't say especially, I don't know that it's changed with Python 3. I'm assuming that it's gotten better, uh, with Python 3 versus 2.7. I should probably go look that up, but anyway, I'll talk about this some other time too, and uh, if you, when you're getting into Python specifically, there was a huge split between Python 2.7 and 3.0 back in the day, Uh, and I think it was kind of right around the like 2011, 2012 kind of time frame, I could look that up real quick, but I don't know, I don't want to, (laughs) it's right around there sometime, Google the... uh, Python 2.7, 3.0 thing. It's been a while now, but now Python's at 3.7 and, you know, people aren't really looking back. I mean, there's, I think there's probably a a lot of legacy 2.7 code out there, but if you're going to start any kind of new Python program, it's most certainly, most definitely going to be in Python 3. So that's a little tip. Don't don't uh, get involved in t- uh, Python 2.7 if you don't absolutely have to. Anyway, um, this whole episode feels like a major digression. And I feel like I just keep going down little rabbit trails. But, oh well. Um, so, if you look at that request uh, package and look at the documentation, it's insanely easier. I mean, it's like you basically just have, uh, I mean, like you can get, you can get something from the internet like I was trying to do in like one or two lines of code. So it's way easier. The other way was, you know, 10 lines or something. And um, it's just a lot easier to understand and easier to use. And so anyway, getting back to my original, uh, you know, story, I I found this, uh, you know, probably within a few days of of digging around, I, I, I found this package and made like a huge difference in what I was trying to do and so I was finally able to download the data and then uh, 
Of course, then I had all kinds of other problems. Like, now I've got this uh, data that I just downloaded, but it's in XML. What's XML? And so um, I went and looked up XML, and if you ever want to just absolutely freaking gouge your eyes out, go, like, read the XML spec or, you know, the uh, official XML documentation. It's just, it's insane. And at first I was just like, holy crap, like, I have to learn this too. And I was just, like, you know, blown away. But I I kind of persisted and looked in and realized, oh, no, you can, uh, you can actually tell the API that you don't want to get XML back. And so I wish I would have figure this out sooner, but it took me like a few days of like hitting my head, actually probably like a week. I kept hitting my head on XML and like, um, I was, I remember looking up like all this, uh, stuff on, um, XML parsers and it's crazy guys. Like, I mean, I really don't enjoy XML. Uh, if you can get your data in JSON, uh, do it. <laughs> don't screw with XML. I'm sure there's there's people out there that disagree with me and there's reasons why you'd want to get XML over JSON, but JSON is by far the easier uh, rich, you know, the um, sort of uh, return format of an API. And it's, you can, when you make a request to the API, you can include uh, a header like the uh, accept header, it's called. And you can basically tell the API like, hey, this is what I want to accept back on your response to me. So you can tell it you want to accept JSON back. And uh, I spent, you know, like like I said, I think it was almost a week, like screwing around with like parsing XML and all these XML nodes and trees and all this stuff. And it was just, it was insane. And so um, I was able to do it. I was actually got kind of good at it. And uh, I was using like XPath and the XML like node reader and all these like packages that I found for Python and um, and then there was like an XLST like schema definition or th- I think that's what it is XLST it was like so painful and like I, I hated every minute of it and once I found Jason um, and uh, was able to, to get the data back in Jason it was like way easier and then I started to uh, take that and then I didn't really know what to do with the data so I started to take that data and just like basically just kind of blindly like shove it into arrays and then I was like okay I've got all these arrays and then uh, and then I tried to uh, like do something with it and I realized it was like really deeply nested which is what happens when you uh, there's a bunch of data that's kind of like held inside the data and when you have deeply nested data structures it becomes very very difficult to get to the data that you're trying to get to it's almost kind of like those russian dolls where there's like all this data like nested down in there and it's it's just it can become extremely frustrating as you gotta you know that's that's not the way you want to deal with it but you know if you, <laughs> you basically have to write all these like four loops and you don't want to have to loop more than like twice if you've got more than like here's a little tip for you if you're already looping over some data and you have to have an inner loop, that's the farthest you should go. If you have more than one inner loop uh, on, on sort of like an outer loop, like you're doing it wrong. You need to back up and, and really just rethink what you're doing because you can start to, and this is another thing, uh, speaking of all these sort of like side things that you got to learn, 
when you become a software engineer, um, there's this thing called the log n complexity, or the uh, I think it's called like O of n, or I'd have to look up exactly the whole story with it. In fact, I learned about it in my degree, and this is kind of a CS degree kind of thing, but um, O of n is like sort of a formula to describe how complex something is, and basically what it is is big O notation. So that's what it's called is big O notation. Uh, and it's the mathematical notation that describes the limiting behavior of a function when the argument tends toward a particular value or infinity. And so um, big O notation basically talks about sort of the growth and complexity of usually the uh, like cycles in a function or how many loops are in a function. And um, anyway, you can represent big O notation with a couple different ways. Uh, it's like O of one or O of N or O of log N and things like that. And so anyway, the, the point is, is that if you have more than one loop, you're greatly increasing what's called the cyclomatic complexity inside of that loop. And uh, you'll grind your code to a halt and the world will explode and, and, uh, and unicorns will be pissed at you. Um, and so anyway, basically you just don't want to do it. So I learned that uh, early on in the whole thing as I was trying to take all this data and shove it into arrays and I had just all this crazy cycling and I was like why is this taking like an hour you know to like try to like dig down into this data and man it just took forever and so anyway the the whole point is that you know there's all these things that I had to learn that I wish I would have known starting out and it would have been nice to have a little bit of guidance uh you know on that and so actually kind of what I'm driving at is this is this is part of a tutorial series that I'm working on right now uh and it's this uh tunnel coder tutorial series and it's kind of like the core things that I wish I would have known when I first started coding and so that's what I'm going to go over I'm going to be going over a bunch of this stuff and kind of helping you as a new uh, you know coder as somebody that's learning how to code wherever you're at in your journey I'm going to be helping you to kind of sidestep some of these mistakes that I made and hopefully really speed up the uh, amount of time it takes for you to to find the right answers and to get, you know, right down to uh, working on the problems that really matter. And so anyway, that's the end of the episode today. I'll probably just leave it there. I'm, I've been rambling a bunch today and kind of getting off on a bunch of rabbit trails, but I'll probably come back on another episode and talk more about sort of that journey of learning what databases to use uh, when I was trying to use all these arrays to dump that data into those arrays and uh, kind of the journey that I had and trying to figure out how do you represent data efficiently to be able to, you know, not only like shove it into something and store it somewhere, but also how do you get it back out and do stuff with it in a good and sort of timely fashion and what do you do with it after you've got it? So I'll, I'll talk about that in another episode. I think that's a fruitful avenue to talk about. But I want to thank you so much for joining me today. And as always, I hope you're having an awesome day or night wherever you're at. And we'll talk to you soon.